Good morning. Thanks for having me up here again. I do always love visiting you guys. Um, just real quick to mention, Steve is not one to do this, so I'm going to do it for him. Um, this week is Pastor Appreciation Week, and Steve and Dee and Tyson Lindsay, they're pastoring um, the team here and leading God to doing, leading this place and God doing amazing work. So thank you guys. Keep up, keep up the good work because God is doing some amazing things. It's been neat to see. I've been with Church on the Rock um, about five years or so now and, and kind of seeing the launch of this campus. Actually, I remember being up here. I think Tyson, I think, I can't remember. I be, remember being up here like hanging these lights and all kinds of stuff and like when the building was just kind of empty and, and uh, who knew that, that it would be what it is today. So um, thank you guys for your faithfulness and uh, man, I'm just encouraged every time I come up here. Um, we're going to be in uh, Acts chapter 17 today and uh, closing out our series on holy discontent. Um, and, it, it, you know, it's an interesting, <clears throat> the idea of discontentment is uh, interesting because it can borderline on uh, grumbling and being discontent in the wrong things. But there is a very real discontentment that God, through his spirit, gives us. What, gives us. And actually, Steve, I'm going to steal a little bit of your closing because it was really profound. God was discontent with what was happening in Willow. And so because of that, he said, hey, I want my name to be made much of, and I want the saints to be encouraged. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create a place for my name to be made much of and saints to be encouraged. And I'm going to bring people along the way to encourage one another and do that. And so what a neat work God does, but it all starts from this place of holy discontentment. What we're going to look at today is um, a, uh, a, uh, a story about... The, the Apostle Paul, and he was a radical missionary, radical evangelist, radical uh, Hebrew, just, just a person who was um, uh, tender and tough and really full of wisdom, but full of tenacity. I mean, this guy, he was just, he was amazing. I mean, he was the guy that when he'd get persecuted, beat up in a city, he'd, um, you know, everyone would be like, hey, get out of here, run. He's like, no, man, I'm staying. I ain't going nowhere. Like, no, they're actually going to kill you. And then you're going to be like dead. So you should just hop out of town for a little bit. But he did it reluctantly. <laughs> but today we're going to be picking it up in, in chapter 17. And this is just coming off the heels of Paul. I believe it's on a second, second missionary journey. Uh, he was going up to Bithynia and the spirit of God says, hey, actually, I want you over in Philippi to help the saints there. He goes there. He finds this. Uh, he starts preaching. He finds it, he goes to the synagogue there, um, but he couldn't find a synagogue there. And there was only, then it was only required to have 10 Jewish heads of household there in the synagogue. So, so in Philippi, this was not a, a place of, of Jewish prominence. And so he finds himself down by the river, meets this, this prayer, this women's ministry prayer meeting happening down by the river, meets Lydia. And then him and Silas are going around preaching and they have this slave girl, this demon-possessed slave girl who's a fortune teller, not just by, by um, uh, uh, hyperbole, but she actually was demonically possessed and telling fortunes and making people, uh, these, these guys, a lot of money. 
And I love this. This is one of the favorite parts in, in, in Acts for me because it says, when, when she had followed them many days, he turned and was greatly annoyed. I was like, yes, Paul gets annoyed. That's awesome. So he cast a demon out of her and well, that caused a big problem because now her slave owners weren't making money off of her anymore. So they have Paul and Silas imprisoned. You know the story, they're, they're in prison thinking like, man, uh, I'm not sure what's happening. And all of a sudden they're singing hymns. Uh, and, and people were kind of wondering like, what in the world where I'd be grumbling at this point. This is where my grumbling would start. And earthquake happens. They have a chance to escape. Paul doesn't. They're like, hey, wait, we still got work to do here. And because of that, um, if they escaped, the jailer would have, um, would have uh, uh, been, been given his sentence, but the jailer thought that Paul and Silas escaped, so he went to kill himself. And Paul's like, hey, hold up, hold up. Don't do that. Ends up converting the jailer. Jailer goes home. Whole family is saved. It's just, it's an amazing story. Then he, then he moves over to Thessalonica, and he's doing the same thing. He comes to, he comes to find the synagogue to first start with his own people and say, hey, I, I'm familiar with this history. I know, uh, I know the Jewish culture. I, I'm well studied. Paul was, Paul was excelling beyond all of his peers in, in uh, uh, Hebrew knowledge and, and understanding. And so he goes to the synagogues. He's like, hey, I understand what, you're, what you study. I understand, but I also understand that how Jesus fits into what we were missing all of our lives. And, and there's, there's, a, there's, a new, there's a new way. And so Paul would always go try to persuade the scripture says he, he went to persuade and reason with the, the people in the synagogues. Well, he went to them in Thessaloniki, Thessaloniki actually is how it's pronounced, I was told by a Greek. Um, and uh, <clears throat> he goes there, they get, they get ticked off at him, so they end up persecuting him, and uh, basically his friends are like, hey, head out, go over to Berea. And um, so he gets there and now he's waiting for, uh, or he goes and does the same thing, except this time in Berea, he actually finds a synagogue and, and some of the people are starting to believe his message now, but the people, the Jews from Thessaloniki heard that and came over to Berea and were going to kill him and beat him up and, and do all that stuff to him. So his, so his friends are like, hey, Paul, why don't you go from Thessaloniki to Bithynia? And then now you, you got to go over to Athens, man. <laughs> like You're just causing trouble everywhere you are. So Paul's like, doggone it, fine. I'll go over here, but I'm going to be back. So he goes over to Athens and this is where we pick up today. He is waiting on Timothy and Sly, Silas to come over to Athens. Athens. And this is where we're going to pick up today. So basically, um, he decides, hey, I'm just going to start ministry while I'm waiting for these guys. So we're going to pick it up in verse 16 of chapter 17 in Acts. <clears throat> now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, which was also Mars Hill, um, and he said, may we know this new teaching that it, that it, what, what this new teaching is that you're presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We, we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. 
This was the culture. They weren't out building houses. They weren't logging. They weren't plowing. They weren't doing anything. They were sitting around trying to play with the mysteries of life, conversing over this. And, and this, is, this is a very uh, philosophical culture. And so they would spend their time doing nothing but this. So, so it kind of intrigued them of this, this guy's new philosophy that he was introducing. So Paul, standing in the midst, verse 22, standing in the midst of Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you were very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all, gives all, to all mankind life and breath and everything. We need to remember, too, that, that Greek culture was very much into their, their mythology, their gods. They, they wanted, Paul was, Paul was enticing their curiosity and really spinning it up right here because he's talking about something that's kind of touching on the top of even their beliefs in their gods. Because their gods needed to be worshipped in temples made by man. But Paul's here is like, hey, actually, I got one of a God that doesn't need any of this. And so 26, and he made from one man every nation and mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. So he's appealing to them again. In verse 27, he says that they should seek God. Well, the, he's talking to people who are seeking gods. So he, he's reasoning out with them. And Paul is very good at reasoning with people. Verse 28, and he said, or uh, 27b, and he said, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, which he's quoting one of their poets right there. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. But then God, God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art <clears throat> and imagination of man. The times of ignorance of the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed on he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in 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 righteousness by a man whom he's appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, "We will hear you again about this." So Paul went out from their midst. Some men joined and believed. Um, Paul is not introducing new concepts to them that they are not. Unfamiliar with the Greeks had salvation conversations. They had um, um, deity. They had uh, um, uh, let's say orders of authority. All that stuff. They understood the idea of sovereignty. They understood this idea of salvation, of of, of appeasing God. But see, they lived their whole lives just trying to appease the gods, so that the gods would not destroy them. And Paul's going to introduce Jesus, and Jesus is not a God who needs to be peased, appeased by our efforts in order to not destroy us. In fact, God doesn't destroy us because of the one he sent. And this is a new philosophy that, that he's introducing to them. And what, what happens is he went around Athens, and, and he saw the city full of idols, and it provoked or troubled his spirit. <clears throat> 
When Paul had heard that there was a, there was a, a he, he saw and heard what was happening and there elicited in him a sense of holy discontent. So often we hear this, this idea about being content with what you have, being content with who you are, content with where you are, et cetera. And I think, I think even in my life, there are so many areas where I can improve on being thankful and looking for the things to be thankful for. But there, and, and I think in those elements, we should not be discontent of what God provides for us and, and who he is as our good father. But there are el- other elements where God's like, hey, I want you to be discontent with this. I don't want you to be content with the state of, of where your heart is at towards me, or I don't want you to be content with, with what's happening around you or the neighbors that you have that are hurting. And so he begins to build in us through, his, through the leading of his spirit, the sense of, of discontentment. There's a difference in discontentment for selfish game and, and, and discontentment for the glory of God. One is um, often led by our flesh, right? And the other by his spirit. Bill Heibel says, a holy, discontentment, it, holy discontent is a motivation to action that is initiated by the Holy Spirit. A motivation to action that is initiated by the Holy Spirit. It's a discontentment with sin, when we become discontent with, with the cause and the effects of our sin, well, then we're motivated to action, right? Like we're tired of carrying the weight of sin, the destructive wake that's left behind. So that discontentment leads to action to leave the, those things leading to death. It's not about our comfort levels or different traditions that we prefer. We know when our spirits are troubled with a holy discontentment, when all we can think about is this must grieve the heart of God. And it's not just looking outward that we, we start looking everywhere around us and say, oh, well, this person there, that person's there. We also just, it just is balanced, look inwardly and say, Lord, what, what, what should I be discontent with, with my own, in my own relationship with, with my community or my own relationship with you even? How many times do we say, man, I should just spend more time with God? Isn't that a discontentment? Isn't that a discontent statement? And can it ever hurt to spend more time with God? No. So, but that should lead to a call to action. And this is what Paul understood is that his discontentment always led to his action. But that holy discontentment also must flow out of our relationship with God, or we become these, these hyper-spiritual vigilantes that, that live pretty duplicitous lives, and we become judgmental and, <clears throat> and all these things. And I will say, if our discontentment leads to an attitude of judgmentalism as though we are better than others, rather than grief, we have we have a, a internal heart problem, and that's something that we should we should take to the Lord in prayer and and have Him realign. But there will always be opportunity for action when we're willing to convert that discontentment <clears throat> or the frustration of our discontentment into fuel for changing the world, changing our communities. So we see that what 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 God does with Paul and what He does with us is He puts us in places for a purpose. Paul's in Athens right at this moment in time. And, and right after Athens, Paul ends up going to Ephesus. More persecution comes. I mean, massive persecution comes. But it also says that within two years, all of Asia had heard the gospel because Paul was just moving forward and continuing because Paul was not content with the world not knowing who this Jesus that he just met was. 
But right now, Paul doesn't look forward to that. He's looking at the day and where God's placed him in that day and says, hey, right now I'm in Athens. And it was a center of uh, uh, philosophical uh, engagement and, and really birth. It was, it was um, uh, really like, like, the, like uh, Socrates and Aristotle. This is where these guys were from. The whole culture was, was highly intellectual, highly philosophical. And here Paul comes in and steps into this culture and sees that there was, um, there was something that was wrong. In fact, in those days, the Greeks worshiped um, more than 30,000 gods and goddesses. Can you imagine trying to keep up with that? My goodness. The streets were full of idols. In fact, it was said that it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. They were afraid that, that maybe they had per, per, perhaps missed some god out of all the 30,000, they missed one. So they made an inscription on one that says, uh, to the unknown god. They don't even know who it is, but just in case... They got it. Nope, sorry. We had that one covered with the unknown God. They didn't even know, but they were so given to this fear of like, we have to appease everything. And Paul doesn't condemn them. He doesn't come in and condemn them. He comes in and, and grieves for them. But he discovered his holy discontent right away when he entered Athens. So he started doing something. While he's waiting for his ministry buddies, he starts doing something. He goes to his own people first, the synagogue. And we see in verse 17 that Paul shared the message on a daily basis. This wasn't visiting a foreign place so much as it was Paul knowing the language that they were going to speak, the way they were going to speak it, the, the, the biblical text that they were going to use. They, he knew all of that, the Torah, all that stuff when he went in to the synagogue. So he went to his own people. And for us, that means our own peoples, our own families, our own little community here. Are we encouraging one another in the word? When, when we know in our own community where we reside, where we stay, relatives, friendships, like like, are we, are we sharing the gospel and are we, are we speaking of the goodness of God as often as possible? But then, um, after beginning from where he, he had influence, he goes to the marketplace. And, and this is, the marketplace then was kind of among the business people, the philosophers would hang out there. It wasn't so much like a, a market store. It was like the marketplace. If you've been to Israel, which I think Church on the Rock is going to Israel there's an Israel trip coming up in uh, March or something, February, March or something. Um, it, Israel's, Israel's incredible. I mean, I, I, would, I would highly recommend going if, if you ever get a chance. But you really get the idea of markets. Like it's, you, can, you can go to these different stores, but this is the place of hangout. This is where the conversations and networking and introductions and all that stuff. And it says that he reasoned with the Epicureans who believed in enjoying life Okay, and then also with the Stoics who believed in enduring life. So now he, he's in the midst of these two people and he's starting to listen to them, understanding where they're coming from. And in the middle of these two extreme ideas, he proclaims about the eternal life, Jesus. See, he knew what they were interested in. He saw what they were searching after. And it's like, he knew the answer. He's like, I need to figure out a way to earn the right to share this gift 
with them, the thing that I already know they're, answer, they're, they're searching for. And we know, like, let's be honest. We know what we're our own souls search for. We know what our crazy neighbors search for. We know what, what all the, the bitter hearts search for. Like, we, we know the answer to that. We know that our hearts long to find meaning and long to have purpose and, and value and self. Like, every human that's ever walked on the earth, that is the, that is the, the problem of the human heart is the search for significance. And if we know that and we know the one who is significant, who can give purpose, then all we got to do is say, okay, I know the answer to their, the cries of their heart. Now I got to build a relationship with them. I got I to gotta earn some, some right to speak to them and, and befriend them and, and help them in, in practical ways. So the question for us today is what places has God positioned us to engage in these sorts of relationships and, and leading to the conversations about life and faith? See, people are all around us, and we have marketplaces. We have ideas right here in Wa- uh, Willow and Wasilla and Palmer and, and Talkeetna. Like, th- th- there are places that people meet to, to talk about these things, to talk about life, to talk about philosophy and education and, and all these things. We have news outlets. We have all these places. Our whole world is, is trying to figure that out right now, especially right now, and it's, it's, it's just a mess. And so Paul engages them there and he begins to hang out with them and, and, and befriend them and, and talk with them. And then after the marketplace um, and, and his, his message is starting to, to gain traction, um, God put Paul at the uh, Aeropagus and, and to the Romans, that was Mars Hill. Now, now the God of Mars um, was uh, basically like the, he, he was the God of war. And so he, it's a very masculine culture. This, this point, like the leaders were very much this, they kind of had that, um, well, probably a real unhealthy, toxic masculinity, if we want to use that phrase. Like they were truest sense, like they they were they were the ones who were exalted in their culture. They were they were warlike, they were they were men's men. And Paul knows this going into this, and that's why he says, <clears throat> he says, men of Athens. I perceive that you're very religious. He's kind of playing to him, but it's, he's also not flattering him. He's, he's not lying to him. They are very religious people, and he had no reason to disrespect them or, or go in and insult them. He just says, men of Athens, obviously you are very religious people. <clears throat> it was here that Paul delivered perhaps his most famous sermon. In fact, uh, his only speech in Acts to an entirely pagan audience. And this is where he was meeting government officials, religious leaders, policymakers, authorities. Like this was the governing board of directors of Athens. An amazing way the Lord opened up doors for Paul. And see, as Paul was discovering his, his holy discontent, he began also to see that, that these guys were just as lost as he used to be as a Jew or as, as, a, as, a, as a religious leader, I should say. And so he said, he knows in his mind, I was just as lost as these guys. And, and, what, and what does Paul say? He says, that, um, uh, he says that God dealt mercifully with me because I was ignorant there's a big difference between ignorance and rebellion. And Paul was a guy going around killing Christians, beating them, imprisoning them. And then when he gets converted, goes back to those same places and begins offering life, offering Christ and, and that same tenacity. 
But he understood that, hey, I was just ignorant of all the beauty of Christ. I was ignorant. So he walks into Athens. He's like, these guys are just ignorant. I'm not offended by them. That's why Paul, when he was getting beat up and all these other places, like he still wanted to go back. He still wanted to go back. And, and part of, 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 of my, my ministry that I get to do with people with Renew Alaska is, is we founded this, this last year, we founded this nonprofit. And basically I get to work with um, missionaries, from over the world, all over the world, in our villages out here, <clears throat> local pastors, um, lay leaders, <clears throat> people that are really just in a disheartened place in life. They're trying to figure out what in the world that there's this chasm that's begin to make itself realize in between what <clears throat> what God says to be true about Himself and our experience. And so often we just want to keep coming to church. We want to keep uh, memorizing scripture and doing this stuff. And this chasm only over time, it just gets wider and wider and wider. And this, that was my life for, for since 2006 when I entered vocational ministry. Um, it was just this like, I'm going to do things in my own effort. And I never really felt like a son. I never always felt like a slave. But yet God would say, no, you're an adopted son. And I'm like, I don't, I don't reconcile these two, but I'm just going to like keep believing. But my experience was always like, no, you're just a slave. You'll never, and I was listening to these lies, all this stuff. You're useless. You'll never be worth anything. You'll never be good enough. All these other things. And so what did I do? I, I started adopting to my own efforts, my own thoughts. And, 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 and really what, what the Holy Spirit does and what I get to do with people now is just facilitate a journey working with Christian leaders and, and closing that chasm so that they can live from that place of health. And that's all Paul's doing here. Is he, he's, and these guys aren't Christian leaders yet, but he sees them as being influential and he goes to those that are influential, the Jewish leaders of the synagogues, the, the men of Athens, meaning the governmental um, uh, people of Athens, and he goes and he, he's helping them close the chasm between the truth about God and their experience. And isn't this what our neighbors need? Isn't this what our culture needs is to understand that, no, God's not a tyrant God's not, God's not looking to, to bully us. So, so our job as believers is to experience that closing of that chasm for ourselves, that, we, that God's truth becomes our experience. Meaning when, when I'm offended by someone or when someone's being offensive, I don't need to take offense. I'm an adopted son of God, not a slave. I'm set free from the need to perform because God has equipped me to do whatever work he wants me to do in life. And it's his will, his spirit to work in me to accomplish those things. So for example, in, in 2008, I was, I was pastoring at a church and I was talking with a friend and, and you know, when you're in ministry, you get, you get the, the extremes of both. Some people will be like, oh my gosh, and other people just can't stand you. That's just the reality. And you can't run from them because they're there week after week. And, and I remember, I remember someone, they were displeased with a decision I made or something. I, I can't remember. And, and, uh, they're like, you know, you're just an idiot. And I remember in that, I remember in that moment, like thinking, well, yeah, I mean, I, I am idiotic in a lot of ways. Like I, I'm, I'm an idiot. If I'm going to go build a, a rocket ship, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to, you know, like there's all these things, but it doesn't matter. Like, I don't need their approval because I don't need to be the person they think I need to be. I need to be living as though I'm a son of God and, and discovering my own identity and figuring out what is God asking me to do? 
So I realized now over this past year that it was all the painful circumstances and, and all the brokenness in my own independence for 15 years that led to the place where I understand it's not, it's not a, a evil desire that people function in their brokenness, not most of the time. It's actually just a misunderstanding of who they are in Christ. And, and Paul is doing the same thing here with the men in Athens. He's like, I understand the draw for religion. I understand it. But there's something greater because you're never going to find it. And so Paul was able to have compassion on these guys that he was ministering to. And, and the Lord opened up those doors for him to come to governing authorities. These guys were like the religion setters of Athens. If a religion was going to be introduced or accepted, these guys were going to give the stamp of approval or not. But so often we leave Jesus in the church for Sundays. We forget him about the rest of our week. And, and really what we need to be doing is looking at the brokenness. And I understand personalities that we can't, we will never get along with certain personalities. Let's be honest. We have coworkers, we have people in our community, clerks, whatever else it is that we're like, I'm just never going to hang out with you but we can still love them. And maybe their personality will change. Maybe their personality is that way because they've dealt with pain and brokenness and let down so often, so many times in their life that they've never experienced the freedom and joy that Jesus offers them. So let us be people that just give and not needing them anything from them. You know, Jesus says, he says, you've heard it was said in all the gospels, but John, we're told to love our neighbor as ourselves, right? So that's what we go. Love God with all of our might. Love our neighbors at ourselves. But you know what John says? You know what Jesus says in John? He says, a new commandment I give you, to love your neighbor as I have loved you. Well, wait a minute. How did Jesus love us? He needed nothing from us. He was so in alignment with being a son and so comfortable with being his father's son that what on earth could any human give him more greater more greater, <laughs> greater than his own identity and his own sonship to the Father. So Jesus was able to love us without needing anything from us. He was able to hang on the cross, be betrayed, be spit on, mocked, all this stuff, and just say, they just don't understand, Father, forgive them. They don't understand. This is the love that we can have. This is the love that Paul began to develop for other people as he began to understand his own relationship with the Lord. The things that trouble our spirit and create holy discontent are often a direct results of ourselves or others not understanding the heart of Jesus. That's, that's, that's the, the truth of it. So if what we see around us and in our own lives grieves us because it grieves the heart of God, and let's be honest, we all know things in our own lives that grieve the heart of God, right? We know other people in our lives that live in a way that understand things in a way or misunderstand things that, that grieves the heart of God. So if we, if we know that, and it's creating this holy discontentment in us, then it's only logical that we offer the only thing that can resolve it, which is more of Jesus, which is a greater obsession on the person of Jesus, which is a greater understanding as we, as we abide with him, as we, as we come to a place where that chasm's closing and we're, we're even more passionate about like, Lord, I want, I want to experience this more. And let's, let's touch on the chasm for a second. There is one side that says there's God's truth. We read it in his word. And then there's our experience. So, so say uh, perfect peace. He offers perfect peace. What's our experience? Not perfect peace, right? 
but he says it. So is that a chasm statement? I think that'd be a chasm statement. Uh, here's another one. Ask anything in my name and I'll do it for you. But our experience says he doesn't. Um, what about uh, you, you are holy and blameless, adopted son of God. Now I'm a shameful slave who's trying to make it through without going to hell. See these chasm statements, if we stop and slow down, we actually have a lot of chasm statements in our life because our experience in the lens we're looking through life with and everything else is saying, no, you are not worthy of this. And God is continually and relentlessly pursuing us and saying, no, no, I'm gonna prove myself to you and you're gonna taste and you're gonna see that I'm good. And as we begin to engage the Lord in this, in this, in this abiding, this, in, as we make our home with him. And, and Luke eleven thirty four 34 says, the eye, if the eye is simply focused, singularly focused, our whole body will be full of light. But if it's not, if it's divided in all these things, then our whole body will be full of darkness. These men in Athens, these, these guys in Athens, they were just looking to find light. They were looking to find peace. Every human wants, wants a, 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 a fulfillment. They want purpose. They want, and in fact, John Piper, I love what he says. He says, he says we're Christian hedonists, meaning that we are designed to seek out our greatest sense of pleasure. And yes, that is true for us. Whether you want to admit it or not, it is. But here's the, even in our serving, we serve because it feels good to serve. We're still seeking our pleasure. But here's, here's where we fall short, that God created us that way to only be met in him, not in anything else. So he says, oh, I'll give you the desire for greatness. I'll give you the desire for satisfaction, for pleasure, but it's all going to be found in me. And I'll keep working with you. I'll keep refining you until you see that with an unveiled face one day. And these men in Athens, that's all, that's all Paul saw. He didn't see a bunch of, yeah, there's a bunch of brokenness and we, we do stupid things and create wastes of destruction in our search for this significance. But Paul was able to look past it. And I, and I sit with pastors and, and leader, Christian leaders all week long, multiple times a day for months on end. And I hear the brokenness and it, and it you know, there's some guys that they're gonna, they're gonna have to deal with the consequences of their sin and we all do. But behind that is a person who's been wounded, a person who hasn't seen the, the Lord as their provider, so they got to go steal, or hasn't seen how God has blessed them with a beautiful and amazing family, so they got to go, they feel like they need to go cheat on their spouses or whatever else, or, or abused authority, all that kind of stuff. So getting behind that and seeing like, man, if people knew how great a pleasure it was to seek the Lord, even in the losing of our own lives they would do it. That's what drove Paul. That's a holy discontentment. When I see that in my own life and I'm like, Josh, you're not loving this person like Jesus would love them. In fact, you're not even loving them like Jesus loves you. I'd realize that all the time in my parenting. I'm like, Jesus doesn't talk to me this way. Jesus doesn't parent me this way. Like, and I'm learning to parent differently because I'm understanding how God cares for me but it should lead us to action. Uh, Nehemiah is a great example uh, of having this sense of holy discontentment. He's, he receives a report of how Jerusalem is in trouble and becoming a disgrace and the walls of the city were broken, all that stuff. And in Nehemiah 1.4, he says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. See, Nehemiah saw something that grieved his heart because it grieved the heart of the Lord. And so like 
God did with Paul, he does with us and he empowers us to proclaim his glory. It's interesting that Paul approaches these guys and uses no Torah references at all. He's not reasoning with, with Mars Hill right now using scripture. He did in the, in the synagogue, but he doesn't do that here yet. He explains in 24 through 27, God is creator. He explains God as sustainer, 28 through 29. And he explains God as, or Jesus as redeemer, 30 and 31. But he does not try to reason with them because they don't know his, his, his background. They don't know his culture. What he does is he engages with truth of where they're at. And you know how this is most effective? Asking questions getting to know people. I remember when I first moved to Alaska, I was um, building ice rinks and stuff and plowing in, in uh, Anchorage. And there was, a, there was a guy, his name was Josh too, man. He was just a, just a firecracker of a turd, man. <laughs> this guy was just something else. And I was always trying to figure out like, like how, do I, how do I love him? How do I have these conversations about faith? And like, because he had some desire. I could see that there was a hunger in him for something more than just the choices he was making in his life. And so I began to just ask him, like, dude, like before I even said what my point was, I just began asking him, like, we'd be, you know, we'd be, we actually, we were allowed to strap on our skates and, and uh, brush up snow, off, uh, shovel snow off the rinks and stuff before we flooded him. It was a lot of fun. But, but we'd be skating and shoveling and I'd be like, dude, what is your thoughts on like eternal life? Is that a weird thought to you or whatever? And then we'd have a 10 minute discussion about that. Then we'd leave it alone. And, and over the course of this time, I was able to have so many incredible conversations because he knew like, I wanted to know where he came from. I wanted to understand what his opposition to God actually was. But I, I don't need to just press my view on him. I need to get to know him. I need to help him. I need to serve him. I need to ask him questions and really just get to know who he is as a person before I just put my philosophy onto him. But then there are times that we'll be invited into those conversations. And we just have to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And I think that Paul is giving a great example of taking people from wherever they are to where they need to be. And he's willing, to, he, he's, he's willing to sacrifice in order to do that. He finds the characteristics of local culture that he can affirm. Men of Athens, you guys are religious. I am too. Let's talk. But here's the deal. They didn't all have good responses. But God enables us to accept the responses. We see this in, in, in verses 32 through 34. See, after doing his part to proclaim the, the word of God, he lets the Holy Spirit work in their hearts. Paul did not carry the weight of the responsibility of converting souls because it's not his job. I, I, I have a lot of horrendous stories in my, in my memory now of working with pastors. I've worked with about, oh, anywhere from 20, people, 20 pastors and, and Christian leaders a week. And over the course of this past year, after being back up here, um, I, I just, I mean, some are just, they, they, they'd horrify you to know what some of these guys have gone through. And, um, and I think about the brokenness in the wake of, of destruction and, and all that sort of stuff that, that happens. And, and there's some, some people that, that they don't want to do what's needed in order to surrender to the Lord. That's just the truth of it. But it's not my job to make them. I get to offer a hope that lies within me, 
I get to offer them something that's better than the destructive and the chaos they're living in, but I can't make them, I can't make them take it. It's like if there was ever a proverb, and I would never add to scripture, Lord, if there was ever a proverb <laughs> that, that, that God said, hey, I'll, I'll add this one to the book of Proverbs, it would be this. You can lead a horse to water, you can't make them drink. And you can. And that's all Paul's doing here. Like he's just like showing them, offering them living water. It's, it's God saying, come, taste and see that I'm good. We can't force people to eat, but what we can do is show them how good it is in our own life. We can, we can offer them, we can explain and facilitate. I'm not a therapist. What I do, I literally stand side by side, literally, figuratively, sit across from people while I walk side by side over three months with them in their own journey, in their own understanding of their relationship with the Lord. And, and that, that's why we really focus on renewal and restoration. Because like, man, I'm not giving them the answers and people get frustrated with me all the time. Oh, it's easy for you to say it's not, but okay. You know, it, it will just tell me what I need to do. I can't, I'm not God, but I can, ha- I can through your frustration, walk into this prayer time with you. I can, through your frustration and through your anger and, and upset and disappointment and, and horrendous past, I can help you bring that to the Lord. And that's all we're doing with people in our lives. And God uses discontentment. He instills in us this discontentment so that we will call to action. Uh, uh, next week when I'm here to give more of a spotlight about what I do, um, I'll, I'll explain more of the, the nuts and bolts of the ministry, but, but how this played itself out in my life is I was, I was pastoring for many years, went through a really, uh, the darkest and hardest season of my life, um, exiting a church that I was pastoring at before. And it was, it was just brutal. And while there were some wrong things done, I was still so independent. I was still trying to do things my own way and, and unhealthy, no, no healthy boundaries with work and home life. And it was just so much, so much was a wreck. And I, and I look and it's like, I never had evil desire. I had good intentions. And the majority of people, they have good intentions. They just don't know how to get to the place of that surrender life. And that's all it is. And so because of my discontentment of watching pastors commit moral failings or pastors burn out or Christian leaders leave the faith because they, that chasm is just too wide for them and they cannot make sense of it anymore, that discontentment leads me to my office every day. And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful place to be when I can sit before the Lord in the morning and say, all right, Lord, I have no idea who's going to get mad at me today, who's going who's to have a major breakthrough today, but I know you do. So give me, give me love for you, give me love for your people, and give me wisdom. And that's all I ask. And God continues to do that. And I continue to learn more of that surrendered life. But the, the responses that Paul endured was ridicule, ridicule, reluctance, and some repentance. See, Paul was ready to accept any response as a result of acting upon his holy discontentment. And it's really interesting because after, after doing his part, he lets the Holy Spirit work in their lives. And that's all we do. Preaching is that same way. I have no idea how, what God is going to do in your lives through the truth of his word. And I care greatly about your, your faith because I know the joy of Jesus, but you are not going to be convinced from my words to go live out a life of faith. It's only when what I'm saying matches with what God is doing already in your heart. And it should always reflect the person of Christ. So if what, what you're hearing is working within the spirit 
to glorify Jesus, to make much of his name and call you to action, great, go do it. But even then, I still can't make you. And that's the joy of God being God and his spirit being the one with power. All we do is proclaim. All, all, my, my joy in coming to Willow specifically, I feel, it's like, I just want to encourage you guys up here. Like, I, I'm like, I'm thinking, I mean, I want to encourage the saints because it's just awesome. I love that there are saints in Willow. It's just, it's incredible. But I can't make you be encouraged. You, actually, it's the Lord that encourages your heart. I can just give testament to his goodness and his faithfulness. The same, the same with anyone who's speaking up here. When we work on our holy discontentment, God works on our behalf. Jesus, when he cleared the temple, you guys remember that story? You know, you know that that was a discontentment of him as he went in and did that. You know that people got saved as a result of that? That they saw these people who were trying to hit. See, Paul being in Athens is not an accident. God had purpose in bringing him there. God had purpose in bringing you, you here. Does because he wants us to see these things. I mean, Steve and Dee are here because of their own discontentment. That sounds crazy to say, though, because we want us to see these things. I mean, Steve and Dee are here because of their own discontentment. That sounds crazy to say, though, because we want to say, oh, don't be discontent. Steve and Dee are here because of their own discontentment. That sounds crazy to say, though, because we want to say, oh, don't be discontent. No, they were just here because of their own discontentment. That sounds crazy to say, though, because we want to say, oh, don't be discontent. No, they were discontent with, with, with what God has done in their own lives. And they're like, man, we, wanna, we want others to see God in this way. So we're going to take on this role of, of shepherding people. And, and I, I know the workings of, of pastoral ministry. It is not easy a lot of the times. And it's, it's, it's confusing and, and hard and laborious. But they do it because they're not content not doing it. And that's a call of God. Your synagogue is your family. Your marketplace is wherever you happen to find yourself, where life is being talked about, philosophy is being talked about, business is happening, hangout is happening, could be coffee shops. Do you guys have a coffee shop? The gas station. <laughs> the gas station. Great. So here's what I'd like to leave you with. We should always be content in him because there's never lacking anything in the Lord for who he is. What we are is just on a journey of discovering more of him. And because God is perfect, he will cause us to be discontent with certain things. And then he will finish the work he started in us, including the work of satisfying our discontentment. He'll continue refining us I mean, think about the process of refining. We're not content with, with the purity of gold, so we refine it until it satisfies. We should never be content with the impurities that are in us, but it should lead us to seek him and let him do the work that he's going to do. Spiritual discontent requires spiritual response. We don't act on our own. We, we humble ourselves and we just seek his face. And here's the deal. If you're here this morning, you're like, yeah, it's just not me. I'm not there yet. That's okay. Because you might, like me, have to train wreck your life. You might have to search after all these other things. But the goodness of God, the hound of heaven, he will be on your shoulders. And it will be the most gracious, 
breaking of surrender of your life you will ever experience. And in that moment, in that repentance of turning away from your your own ways of doing things, your own pride, you don't turn to more religiosity, you turn to the one. You turn to Jesus and you're like, all right, I'm, I'm ready now. And God will do that in your own time. But I will tell you, I will not be content until you see Jesus I will not be content until my own kids see the, see the face of Jesus and continue to grow more and more. I will not be content until I see the face of Jesus. One of my life goals is to learn to live in such a way that when I meet Jesus face to face, I'm not surprised by him at all. I want to know his face. I want to be like, man, we're homies. We've lived an entire life on earth together. I know your heart. I know your mind. I know all these things. I want to, I want to be as least surprised by him as possible. God puts us in a place for purpose. He empowers us to proclaim his glory and he enables us to accept the responses. I'll have the worship team come up as we close with some worship. We have discontentment that is directed by God and we have discontentment that is directed by our flesh. One leads to thankfulness. One leads to grumbling. If you're wondering which one, just, just evaluate your heart. As David says, search my heart, oh God, find the evil ways in me, find the wickedness in me. There's wickedness in us and God is mercifully gonna, gonna refine that out of us. But let us discover our holy discontent and do something about it by depending on him. And maybe that means we, we move to action immediately and maybe that means we pray until God opens up opportunity or until he, he really presses on our heart, it's time to do something. Would you guys stand and, and just... I guess maybe take the next few minutes to to ask the Lord to bring to clarity the areas of our lives and the areas of your life that he's he's wanting you to give attention to in that discontentment. And there should be no shame. There should be no condemnation. There should only be this drawing to his face. And the things that grieve us should be the things that grieve God also.